I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to Wood Talk, crafting artisanal sawdust since 2007. Now here are your hosts, Mark, Shannon, and Matt. All right, welcome to Wood Talk, episode 434 for May 7th, 2018. On today's it's show... It's a palindrome, 434. Oh, it is. That's wow. amazing. We you should can celebrate. listen to the show backwards and it's the same. All right, uh, on today's show, we're talking about struggling to get started on a project, shellac and wax finish, sharpening issues, and the Mark II jig, that's the Veritas, uh, book recommendations, and hollowing with hand tools. Now, today's show is sponsored by our friends over at Brusso Hardware. Uh, are you looking for inspiration on your next project? I'm sorry, for your next project. I, I actually do read these things and sometimes I In mess the up. middle of your next project. This thing <laughs> sucks. I need inspiration. <laughs> I'm often looking for inspiration in the middle of a project. That's usually like the, you know, the, the slump time, the Wednesday of the project week. Right. You know, uh, well, Brusso Hardware features amazing customer submitted projects in their photo extra newsletter. It's updated every week and showcases the dedication and craftsmanship of your fellow woodworkers. What kind of projects you ask? I think you asked that. Could have sworn I heard you say that, Shannon. I thought it. Yeah, okay, well, we're connected that way. Uh, how about things like keepsake boxes, humidors, furniture, and much, much more? Now, these folks also share their thoughts behind the process of what they built. Uh, if you want a sweet, sweet dose of inspiration delivered straight to your inbox, you got to sign up for the Brusso.com Photo Extra. That's Brusso.com slash Photo Extra. Go sign up. Go go drool sweet over hinges. those sweet hinges. Sweet hinges. You ever take them off and make cool jumps? Didn't we do that joke last time we did an ad? 
Yeah, it's just that's all I can think of when you say sweet, sweet inspiration. Yeah, oh, good stuff. Uh, all right, so you may notice we have a distinct lack of giggling and immaturity on the show. It's really just the two uh, mature guys at this point. Am I right? Oh, boy. <laughs> Okay, wait, oh boy. one mature guy and one a-hole, and uh, I'm not going to tell you who's who. <laughs> uh, so Matt is not with us this week. I don't know what he's doing now. He's got like a furniture show where he's showing off his uh, Queen Anne high boy, and then uh, he'll be in the UK, I guess. He's he's doing, what is it, the, um, what's that show called? Maker something? Maker Central? I think so. Yeah, something that's going on over there, all the all the maker people. Uh, basically half of Instagram will be in in the UK uh, this this coming weekend or something like that. So it uh, should be a good time for him. Wish him uh, safe travels, and we will hear from him again next week when we start a normal recording schedule. So Maybe he'll have an accent by then. Oh, I would hope so. He'll I would giggle, hope so. He'll giggle with his pinky up. You know, my brother moved to England a couple of years ago. Well, probably more than a couple. And it's something, I guess, you just, you can't help it. You're there long enough and this stuff slowly but surely, you know, starts to, to work its way into your, your, your speech patterns and just little, little things. And he comes back and I, I like half the time with the stuff he says, I'm like, dude, you remember you were born in New Jersey, right? <laughs> like, but I, I have to under, I would understand that, you know, you live there long enough, you hear it constantly. It just, you can't help it. It just reinforces uh, your speech patterns going in that way. There's, there's just certain certain British isms that just don't mesh with Jerseyisms. No, they don't mix at all. Like we went for, went out for breakfast. Call him the pizza. Brilliant. Stop (laughs) being shocked about it. (laughs) We went out out for breakfast and he, uh, he ordered brown bread and it was like, what the hell's brown bread? Like, obviously you're talking about like wheat, but you don't order brown bread. You order, you know, the specific type of bread you want. And, uh, that's just one great example of, of how much fun it is to hang out with my brother when he comes to visit. Okay. Good story. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad I went there. Um, what's on the bench this week? Uh, for me, I started the executive desk, and that's a big guild project. That's uh, well, Actually, it's a month delayed, <laughs> a little bit behind, uh, but I am making uh, some headway on this thing. So it's a big old executive desk. It's going to be actually where I'm sitting right now. It's going to be my recording desk for the podcast, and uh, really looking forward to it because right now I've got like two Drobos and a raid enclosure and like all these things sitting on top of the desk. So it's a nice big desk, but it's totally covered in gear. So I cannot wait to have like really nice organization for stuff and, and not having to look at wires everywhere. So that is uh, underway. Yes. Hard to dust with all that crap up there. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's exactly it. No one ever cleans my desk because it's always too messy to clean it. Can't stand this stuff. Nicole's got a, I don't know. It's her fault. Yeah. Uh, let's see what the other thing was. Oh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this because I think this is cool. So wood bleach. Have you ever yeah. messed around with wood bleach? Not in my own shop, but we do it at the yard all the time. We're constantly getting requests for um, <clears throat> bleached products or like already weathered products. Okay. You know, the gray look or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we are always, anytime we hear of a new product, <laughs> it's just kind of funny because there's this little kind of half retaining wall out in front of the main door into the, into the offices and there's always like seven or eight sample boards sitting out there in various <laughs> states of bleach or dye or something mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah. yeah, I was actually kind of curious to see how your experiment came out because it's with cherry, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So the, the desk is cherry and I wanted to have a little bit of a, a subtle 
two-tone sort of thing. I did not want to go maple and cherry because that's too stark of a contrast. Uh, I wanted something that looked a little bit like cherry, but clearly lighter in color. So I thought, all right, this might be a cool time to experiment cherry with sapwood. What cherry was? Yes. Can I find four by eight sheets of plywood that are all sapwood cherry? <laughs> Is that something I could order? I think somebody mm-hmm. could lay that up for me. <laughs> That'd be great. Actually, might be able to get a good deal on that. Yeah, considering exactly. All the veneer guys are just burning that stuff. Yeah, they might only cost twenty bucks. Uh, so, uh, because the panels are plywood, this is the situation. I wanted the panels to be the lighter color, and then the rails and styles and legs to all be natural aged cherry, and they'll get nice and dark over time. So, the only thing I could think that would make sense is to actually take cherry panels and try to bleach out the color. Now, I got kind of got a little bit of an education on this stuff. I thought it was pretty cool uh, because my first experiment was of course going to be to head to the laundry room and pick up some Clorox bleach and see what happens and doing a little bit more digging. It turns out that it's not that simple. And a lot of the, the chlorine bleaches that we would have access to the household bleach type stuff is it's going to be effective for removing things like dyes and stain colors, the the things that we add to the wood, but isn't going to do a whole lot to change the natural color of the wood. And something like cherry obviously is going to undergo a a big change. So you have to anticipate the fact that if this thing just ages or it goes in the sun, it's going to accelerate. So you have to find something that actually changes it chemically so that you actually aren't able to get that color shift uh, to occur. So there is a thing called wood bleach and there's a couple different companies that make it. And I haven't looked at the actual uh, chemical composition. I know it has some hydrogen peroxide in it and something else. Uh, but this stuff actually does bleach the wood fibers themselves and will do exactly what I'm looking for it to do. The question is how much bleach, how dilute, how long to expose it. Uh, and I did a little bit of experimentation and it works. It definitely works. But the first set following the instructions with the full strength treatment kind of turned cherry a little bit greenish and in fact made it look like poplar. <laughs> which is not not really the desired effect that I wanted. I really want it to be more of a, a blonde, grayish kind of color. So I did a few more experiments, and turns out, you know, you, it's a two-part solution. If you increase the amount of part B, that makes it a little bit more, you know, a little weaker and uh, not, not quite as powerful. And it's a two-stage process, so you can sometimes just skip the second stage if you want it to be a, a lighter bleaching. And I have a test board that's out baking in the sun right now for the color shift, and I think it's going to be perfect. Uh, I don't get quite as much of that green, and it's it just looks like a blonde cherry wood. And hopefully, if two days in the sun should be about enough for me to see what's going to happen. I just want to confirm that over time, that color isn't just going to come back. Maybe it'll darken a little, but substantially less than if it wasn't bleached at all. So hopefully that'll be good. And hopefully it won't be the kind of two-tone crafty thing that you don't like (laughs) when you do that. (laughs) Uh, Because it is, it really is taking what you love visually about cherry and just toning it down, bringing it into a lighter color family and what better to match, you know, two woods than actually the same material. It's just, we, you know, bleached out some color. Which, which begs the question, why not add color instead of trying to mellow one board? Why not darken another? Uh, Wouldn't that be easier? If you, okay. So you're saying, you're saying with cherry, try to darken the rails and styles. Yeah, well, because plywood, first of all, is going to be lighter anyway, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you've got that thin veneer, sure. and there's only so much darkening um, going on because, you know, you've got a 40th of an inch 
um, thickness of material. It mm -hmm. always ends up being a little bit lighter. So why not take your solid wood and I don't even know that you even have to dye it. I mean, I guess you could use a really dilute dye, um, but actually make the, the color change on the solid wood and let the plywood stay as it is, you know, and yeah. certainly they're both going to darken, you know, over time. But if there's a little bit of pigment added to the rails and styles, it seems like that would be a little bit easier because what you don't know is, you know, what, what is the color fastness of the bleach? Is it, and what is it actually doing now? I mean, it's a, it's using a, a whatchamacallit, an oxidizer, the hydrogen peroxide, Let's get chemical here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the oxidizer is breaking up the chromophores, the pieces that that's what gives it its color. So yeah. it's going in and, and, and breaking up those, I don't know, we'll just call them covalent bonds because that sounds fancy. Uh, and that's a little it, risky. I'm not sure that that's it. it, it but. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> it's hijacking the chromophores and yeah. it's actually taking the color out of the wood. So I, ideally that should be good enough. But what we don't know is, as the cherry then darkens over time, you know, the, the chemical processes that are happening as it's darkening over time, it's pulling some of those same molecules, whatever it is, deeper in the wood out and it's getting a little bit darker. Mm -hmm. So how long will the bleach last? You know, well, so will that start to, as it darkens, will you start to lose some of that bleach? Whereas if you darken the other part, then at least, you know, there's something over top of it, right? Yeah. yeah. That, so well, I, let me. I, I don't know. I like your idea because I don't. I wouldn't want to darken anything too much. Yeah. You know, I like the natural look of cherry. Um, it would have to be a really dilute dye mix, and that just right. may not be enough. Well, let me answer the first part of your question, and then I will postulate a theory for you. Since we're getting all scientific, um, I didn't want to go any darker because the the dark natural aged color of cherry is as dark as I wanted to go. So mm -hmm. if I did anything uh, artificial on top of that, if for it to even have any impact, I'd have to go darker than that. And that gets me into territory I didn't want to be. So I, that would shift me too far in one direction on the color, you know, the color scheme that we're looking at. So my darkest color I wanted was the natural solid material. So it was my only choice was to lighten the panel or just use a lighter species. Uh, and, I, and again, I'd rather a chemical stain if I can, than a, uh, you know, an actual pigment or dye based stain. And the reason for that kind of goes into your second thing. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is. And I should have done some research before, you know, running my mouth on this, but the color shift that happens in cherry is because of the tannin content, correct? Right. right. So my guess is what we're actually doing is affecting the tannins. So that if if those are not able to create the color shift because of this bleaching process and the oxidation that happens, that's what's going on. So my guess is those bleached areas are not going to get a whole lot darker, uh, maybe a little yeah. bit depending on of the tannin content. But that is only skin deep. So if the panel were to be sanded or you know scraped or something, it's only going to affect as as far as that stuff was able to penetrate. The the bleach was able to penetrate. So you could bring it back, but in the case of a veneered panel. It's never going to be a problem. So I actually yeah. don't think, especially given how little color shift I've seen in my test boards from, you know, two full sun days. And, you know, with any kind of cherry, two full days in direct sunlight is going to really give that thing a nice dark tan. Uh, and seeing the amount of color change that's there, uh, I've got faith that it, it's going to stay pretty well contrasted over time unless someone were to scrape and sand it back. So it's less that you're lightening the panel and just stopping the darkening. Exactly. 
Yes. Yeah. That but, and I will say that it does go maybe a shade or two lighter. Like once the bleaching is done, you know how um, new cherry has that sort of very light salmon pink kind of color to mm-hmm. it. That does go away with the bleaching process that little bit. And again, depending on how much you do, and it could go anywhere from just kind of graying it and whitening it a little bit to the point where it's just starts to appear green. And it's interesting when you start to get into the color wheel type things, because now we've essentially pulled away all red out of this thing. So if you think about it color wise, the green is showing up. And what I did to test some of my other boards was I took a dilute solution of red dye, very, very dilute, and put that over those greenish boards. And sure enough, you know, green and red, it turned it to a decent looking brown color. But again, then I was like, talk about a ridiculous process. I was bleaching. And then applying more color to bring it back to, I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's, yeah. let's try dilute bleach before I do a two-step process. Right. So, yeah, that's, well, I mean, that's the whole. It's, it's interesting, and I'm glad you brought up the whole commercial, or not even commercial, but consumer-grade bleach. Because I've done, um, anytime I've done bleaching, it's specifically to accelerate that color muting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got a, a video on the um, Lumberyard website about what the sun does to tea because teak is really the worst when it comes to the massive color shift you get from plain to, mm. to golden brown. And then I did uh, another video that I actually haven't released yet um, where I tried to artificially create what five days in the sun did and pulling out all the grays and the greens and the streaking and everything that you get in teak. And um, yeah, regular off the shelf bleach did very little. Mm. But um, toilet bowl cleaner, like the gel <laughs> stuff that's meant to like cling yeah. under the under the rim, right. it was incredible. But it immediately turned everything kind of sickly bilious green. Yeah. Um, but what happened is then because teak is so oily, it then kind of seeped back out and it um, took took the green away. But it also all the streaking and all the the grays and all that stuff was gone and you just had this, you know, lovely honey brown color. So it's interesting. It's interesting. It's kind of fun. Put on your white lab coat in the shop. It really is interesting when you get into things like chemical stains and the bleaching process that's attacking the natural, you know, color tendencies and color changes in wood. It's a, it's a different level of staining. And I think it's much more, it's much more compelling and much more interesting uh, than just, you know, throwing down some, some in wax oil based stain and saying, look, I'm done. It's yeah. uh, it's fun and it's you know can be dangerous depending on what you're using, but right. kind of exciting. It's like all those old episodes of Woodworks when <laughs> yeah. David Marks pulls out the <laughs> potassium dichromate. Yeah, and he throws the like the obligatory safety thing out there, and it's like that stuff is nasty, dangerous. Yeah, not only is it like bad, it's actually carcinogenic. You may you right. you, you may want to use something else, just you know a possibility. <laughs> oh man, well that was a, a big diversion. Um, what's going on in your shop? So I have a question. When you build, say, similar types of furniture, say when you build uh, one table the next or something, do you always do it the same way? Like build, like maybe start with the legs or start with the top or something. Do you find yourself doing it the exact same way every single time? I do. I sat down to plan out this executive desk, which is really just a table, you know, with legs and Mm -hmm. and side panels. Uh, And I kind of did go through that thought process. And I'm like, well, of course, I'm going to start with the legs because that's where I always start. Right. And that just to me, there is a natural flow for most furniture types. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So 
I just started work on um, a bedside table, and it's going to be this bow front thing with kind of a cool um, asymmetrical drawer stack on the front, hmm. uh, maybe a little kind of Fibonacci looking, three different size drawers, Nice. Uh, all curved in the front with um, bird's eye maple veneer over the front. That's what I've been playing with veneering curved surfaces recently. So I, in the effort to kind of be expedient about it, I was doing a demo on spring joints. And I thought, you know what? I need to make a panel for this. So I went ahead and did my demo on, on you know, match planning and spring joining the boards. Now I've actually got the top already built. Um, and I went ahead and shaped it because I figured, well, you know, the curve of the top is going to kind of telegraph down the front of the actual case. But it's so weird. I always build the top last. Right. Now I'm like, what do I do now? Like, <laughs> just just interrupting the slightest little routine. That's so weird. And I'm like yeah. completely paralyzed. Like, oh my God. Because normally I would do the legs first and then I right. would do the aprons and, you know, build the actual case below it. And then last thing I would do is the top. Well, now the top is fully done. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. Like, I mean, I'm being silly at this point. It's just a matter of kind of shifting my, my, my brain a little bit and going back to the legs. But I'd be curious to see like, how an already milled top moves because this is a wide 22 inch wide board Mm -hmm. um, two two panel glue up you know we always talk about when you're milling stuff and it's going to move over time and everything and Mm -hmm. sometimes it's best to go ahead and assemble fast before stuff starts to move on you right really kind of curious now that this top is leaning off to the side and considering that i'm not following any of the advice that i give people and i'm actually starting this project while i still have three others that are on the pinch. Um, I don't know that I'm going to get to assembling it anytime real soon. So I'm kind of, I don't know, should be an interesting experiment to first of all, see if my table explodes because I decided to build it backwards by building the top first. Um, just my whole process breaks down. I'll end up curled up in the corner whimpering. (laughs) No, what do I do? Everything I know is wrong. Well, I mean, if this may, if anything, just kind of reinforce the reasons why, because if someone says, well, why do you do the top last? You might initially have trouble explaining it, but now you're going to probably confront issues as to why. Number one, the piece could move. It's not being attached to a base. Uh, The other thing I'm thinking with this desk, I did the same thing. I've got my top boards, put them on the side. I'm like, well, don't need those for a while. It wasn't even a thought in my mind. And part of the reason, especially with a big top, is this is, number one, the most noticeable part of the project. And if that's sitting around for a couple of weeks right. while I'm working on other things, Get around, yeah, you're going to knock things into it, you're going to bump it, and you're going to have some cleanup work to do, which is no fun. So it just logically seems to make sense to, to keep that top as well, the last thing you do. I mean, and in the sizing of it as well, it's relative to the base. Yep. Yeah. And technically, the base is relative to the top as well, but it's a lot easier to size a single panel than it is to size a bunch of mortise and tenon joints and legs in order to make a relative size. So granted, this is not, uh, I've got some room to play with here. I went ahead and shaped the bow front, but I could, I could certainly trim the length a little bit and mess Mm -hmm. around with it. The back is flat. It goes up against the wall. So it'd be really easy to trim that back if need be, but Mm -hmm. it's just weird because now like I, I, I need to pay attention to it as I'm building the base, as I'm sizing my mortise and tenons. And certainly it's, you know, it's, it's woodworking one-on-one, right? It's called measuring. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Don't know how to do that. There might be an issue, but still normally I would build the base, pay no attention to measurement and then like maybe use a pair of dividers and say, okay, what is my overhang going to be? And then mm-hmm. I just, there I go. You know, I use right. the base and I figure out the size, the size of the top, but I have to go backwards now. Mm. So it's just, maybe it'll make me stronger. That's I think what it, it will. Is. It'll be good. forcing myself to do something different. 
<laughs> right. Well, it'll, if anything, reinforce the reason why you want to do it the other way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So let's Hang get on, into this. This is not going to go well. <laughs> right. Uh, let's jump into what's new. Got a couple of things to uh, make you aware of here. First of all, I saw coming across my Facebook feed recently that the Highland Woodworker is back. And I don't know when, but pretty soon, uh, our, our good buddy Charles Brock over there is going to be hosting as per usual. And it doesn't look like there's any big changes. It just looks like they're back. Which begs the question, why did they leave in the first place? <laughs> like, where'd you go? Where'd you go? Why'd you leave? It wasn't that long ago, right? It was less than a year ago that they stopped doing the show. Or, or maybe my sense of time is wrong. Yeah, I don't know. It feels like they've been gone a little while, but still. Yeah. A little while in internet time is... Sure. You didn't post a video this week. Did you <laughs> <Right>. quit? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, you know, but I got to say, the world is better with Highland Woodworker in it. So uh, yeah. um, I'm glad to see that come back. Absolutely. So this one's interesting. Uh, Jacob sent me um, a part of a YouTube video. Um, I'm familiar with Ishitani Furniture. He's got a great channel, cool, cool um, projects that he builds over there. But he said, what is this magical machine that seems to be hand planing planks mechanically and where can I buy it? <laughs> is this what Shannon keeps behind a secret bookcase in his garage? Go ahead and quit already. See if I care. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for that, Jacob. Um, so at the, the eight minute and 18 second mark of this video, um, he pulls um, their, their backer boards. They're like thin, like shiplap boards to go in the, um, in the back of a case, I think. And he turns around, goes over and drops it on this joiner looking machine and it zips through and out comes this big shaving on the bottom. And that's exactly what it is. And I'm trying to remember what it's actually called. Maybe you might remember this. I've always referred to it as a slicing machine. Okay. Um, essentially, it's a power feeder that runs over like a guillotine blade. So um, it is a planer, um, not like thickness planer, a hand planer mm -hmm. type thing. Imagine turning a plane upside down on your bench and running a board over it. You're going to get a shaving that pops at the bottom. Now, imagine if you had some sort of power feed roller that you would find in like a thickness planer that will pull the wood into the blades. But now the blade is stationary and you're just passing it over that, that blade and you it's, they're very cool. I've seen them a lot. Um, guillotine slicers, I think is another uh, name for you. You find them in like professional frame shops where they actually slice the miter into, into shape. This is the same type of thing, except it's working longitudinally. Why? I don't know. <laughs> um, and, 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 that was the thing I was actually Googling trying to, and I did find a couple instances where it's referred to as a wood slicer. So I'm not the only one calling it that, but there's probably some fancier name and, and why that machine exists, what particular application that would have over, I guess, maybe a thinner board, you know, why you wouldn't want a rotary cutting action or something. Mm -hmm. I don't honestly know. Um, I mean, certainly you get a, there, there's a lot of talk about, you can get a nicer finish off of a, off of an edge over abrasion, but even that is a bit of a specious argument because yeah. I've seen, I've seen both, you know, finished boards looking fantastic and you go, Ooh, this one was hand planed. Yeah, that's pretty. This one was sanded to 320 grit. Yeah, that's pretty. You know, it's like, <laughs> right. I mean, maybe you're, if you look real close, there may be some depth and luster differences from the non-abraded surface, the plain surface. But I think we're really, you know, only the woodworker would, would see this. And the, 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 the lay person would be like, yeah, whatever. You're smoking mm -hmm. something. So I don't know. I, mm -hmm. I don't exactly know 
why this machine exists. It seems like it, I don't know that this is what happened, but it almost seems like it would be a intermediate part of the evolution of a planer and a jointer. It's like, all right, well, we know we can move wood across the blade or we move the blade across the wood manually. So step two, let's move the board across the blade. And they figured that out. But then step three is let's move the board and the blade and put multiple blades. You know what I mean? So it's like this is somewhere in between that just never evolved any further. I could see where you'd use this where the offcut is what you're looking for, mm-hmm. like in a veneer slicer <clears throat> and, you know, plywood plants and things like that. Yeah. It's the same type of deal. Where you've got this massive log cant and you're just dropping it down on a guillotine slicer and it's slicing out, you know, veneers that you then stack sequence match and you make a plywood panel. But in the when you watch this video, I mean, it's this whisper thin shaving that comes at the bottom. It's the coolest part of it. And I'm racking my brain trying to remember where I've actually seen one of these in use before. Mm-hmm. Um, because I remember it was at a, it was, was it Chuck Bender's shop? I don't think so. Because he has a 36-inch planer. Um, somewhere, I, I feel like it was a class that I took. And it was the coolest thing ever. Like, you would you would just convert boards into shavings. Because it's just like, you stick it at the end. It's like, zip! And this cool shaving <laughs> drops out the bottom. But I don't think this is a machine that's meant to take a heavy shaving. I mean, okay. These are smoothing plane style shavings of like a thousands of an inch thick. Uh, that's cool. Um, so I, I don't know that you would want to use the shaving for something. Gotcha. It's not like you're making here or whatever. Yeah. But if anybody knows, first of all, I would love to know what the technical name of this is because I'm going to make a pitch that we get one at the lumberyard just so I can play with it all day. Yeah. I'll make and, note uh, paper. And Jacob wants to buy one too. So yeah, absolutely. We're going to buy it. But more importantly, why, why do we need this? <laughs> Never, never asked that question in woodworking. The whole thing falls <laughs> apart, Shannon. The whole illusion is destroyed if we ask that question. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Um, moving on here. Brian wrote in. He says uh, there's an article here on robots assembling furniture. It's an uh, economist article. And it is about that exact thing. I didn't read the whole article, but I think it's dealing with IKEA using automation and uh, in some some parts, artificial intelligence to produce furniture, and there will be no reason for people like us to exist pretty soon. Oh, there's already no reason, so. Yeah, very true. <laughs> Are you just going to sit there and stare at me the whole show? Kenny is, is literally sitting on my foot just staring at me. He thinks you have a hot dog in your pocket. Really annoying. <laughs> okay, dogs are weird. Uh, this next one's from Glenn. This is kind of interesting. Um, he says, I was checking out the Elkhead tools website and found that they have a dowel maker, the dowel shaper TS. I also noted that in order to buy this product, you need to sign a waiver. So you can <laughs> go to Elkhead tools. We'll include the link and see the waiver. I, I looked at it and read it and it basically says working with a table saw is dangerous. Follow the instructions, you know, yada, yada, yada. It's very boilerplate. And we, Elkhead Tools, are not liable for if you hurt yourself. Um, and Glenn goes on to say, I can buy a chainsaw, table saw, bandsaw, etc., without much other than a few pages in the manual on safety. So just how unsafe does this thing have to be that I can't buy it without relinquishing any thoughts about blaming the company for injuring myself? I know Elkhead is just protecting themselves, and I'm sure that it's a quality item, but this sort of caught me off guard. Huh. So, you know, it's it's a it's one of those things where... Um, you rotate, you, you, you've got your blade running and the jig kind of sits over top of the blade and you're sticking a square blank in and you're, you're spinning it. And the, the blade is kind of nipping off the corners and you're creating a dowel as you turn this and pass it over the top of the blade. 
So, you know, it, it's one of those definitely kind of stretching the table saw, almost like, you know, cove cutting on a table saw. You know, you're yeah. cutting not straight on the blade and you know, everybody says you got to take really, really light cuts and all that stuff. So th- there are certainly lots of ways this could go wrong. And I'm sure that the jig kind of removes a lot of those things, but there's any number of things you could still do wrong and end up, you know, hurting yourself, destroying Mm -hmm. the jig or whatever. So I could see why they would put this out here and say, okay, here's the waiver. But it is kind of interesting. Is this the first step? You know, (laughs) we've become such a litigious society. Is this the first step now that you're going to have to start signing waivers when you buy, um, any power tool now or you know, not even a power tool, a jig for a power right. Tool. Exactly. Yeah. This, at first I was like, yeah, this is stupid. They're just being overly cautious. But how many times do you hear about some Yahoo suing a company because they did something stupid? And this is the reason why, you know, I don't know. Pickle jars have to say, don't stick your, your face in it. You know what? Stupid, stupid things like that. Like, like no kidding. McDonald's coffee says it's hot. Don't pour it on your crotch. You know, so like, and I was thinking about, I'm like, no, they are well within like a reasonable realm of possibilities here that some guy or gal, someone may come along one day, hurt themselves and come after this company. It's like, I'm actually surprised that we don't have to do more of this, especially like you're buying chainsaws and stuff. What they're selling won't hurt them. No, it's the saw they use it on. So they have no quality control over how you set it up. What your saw, does your saw have run out? Is your blade dull? Is it an underpowered tool? You know, any number of things could be wrong with the actual thing with the spinning wheel of death on it. Yeah. And their jig just sits, you know, on top of it. Or I I don't know, maybe sits to the side of it. Who knows? Um, So it it is interesting. I mean, certainly you could look at this and go, this is a non-standard use of a table saw. Mm -hmm. So immediately... You know, we always talk about that little that little guy on your shoulder that says, you might want to rethink this. Yeah. <laughs> Before you make that cut, something, you know, spidey sense is going off. Right. Stop. Rethink. And and this is one of those tasks that it's kind of like, eh, I'm stretching the table saw a little bit here. It's not necessarily unsafe. I've actually cut dowels this way before and somebody else's saw. It It's very effective. Um, <clears throat> what's his name? Crazy mad scientist guy. Izzy Swan built yeah. one of these on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um and, and here's the other thing. You may look at this and go, oh, Izzy Swan built one of those. That's a cool idea. I'm going to build one myself. And I'm going to basically copy what Elkhead Tools has done. So if they then hurt themselves because they just copied exactly what Elkhead Tools, do they then have recourse to go back to Elkhead Tools and say, well, I used your design? I mean, I think that's a bit of a stretch. But you know, there's probably some that's lawyer. It's not going to stop somebody from that. doing it. Yeah, some lawyer will take that case. <laughs> yeah. So if they have Crazy. a waiver saying, well, first of all, if you'd bought our product, you know, this wouldn't have happened, but mm-hmm. yeah, anyway, right, kind we'll, of interesting. We'll put the I, link there I for them, that. but you know, while you're at Elkhead, just go to the screwdriver section and just yeah. look around, just sit there and soak it in. Soak in That's that good. $95 three piece set of Mesquite Phillips classic screwdrivers. Yeah. And like the original ones that you and I have with the Cocobolo handles, those uh, things are worth a fortune now. Now oh, that Cocobolo is yeah. CITES listed and they won't sell them anymore. That's right. Yeah. These Collector's things, items. These things are, look, look, it's expensive. It's stupid. They're just screwdrivers. But oh my gosh, do I want them? Oh yeah. They're just gorgeous. All right. Anyway. The handle they make for new concept fret saws, mm-hmm. to me that it's beautiful and it's expensive, but to me it's a game changer because it changes the weight of the saw entirely. Totally oh, changes yeah. the weight and it's this very well balanced hmm. machine at that point. Cool. So, now, 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 there's another thing for me, now there's another thing for me to spend a ton of money on. 
Yeah, there you go. Okay, let's get into some voicemails, shall we? We've got four of them here. First one is from Craig. He's got a little helical kickback. Hey, guys. Craig Grider from Wiley, Texas again. I've got another kickback for you. Uh, this one with regards to the helical heads for the planers and the joiners that um, I see everybody putting in now uh, to retrofit their, their old uh, joiners and planers. Um, the thing that I don't hear most people talk about is that when you switch over to the helical head from the knives, that you lose power at the uh, point of cut. Um, what I mean is with the knives, um, you get t- time in between each cut that the motor is allowed to spool back up to get more power at that point of contact. With the helical head, you're in constant contact. So while a, let's say, a three-horsepower machine with knives is designed um, uh, to be true three-horsepower at the point of cut, once you switch it out and put a helical head on it, it doesn't act like a three-horsepower anymore. So what you end up with is the situation like I think happened with uh, Matt using um, Mark's uh, joiner um, where he was taking a, a larger cut. And while that joiner is designed for a deep cut, I mean, they, you, there's a reason that they have a max limit on it. But you should be able to do a quarter-inch cut on that, that uh, Powermatic. That's what I have. And, uh, but if you uh, have the helical head, it's going to bog down because it's not getting as much power. So just wanted to point that out. I've got, like I said, I've got the 8-inch the Powermatic. I think it's the same one that Mark has. And I was uh, toying around with the option of putting a helical head on there. The only reason I haven't yet is because of the uh, the cost. But um, it's something to point out in case anybody else uh, didn't know that. That, yes, if you do switch over to the helical head, you might uh, keep in mind that you may not be able to go as deep with your cuts. So thanks again and uh, look forward to the show. Hmm. Interesting. I would think the reason no one talks about it is because it's not actually a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and I, and the, the thing with Cremona at my shop bogging down my joiner was actually a joke. Uh, he was taking very heavy passes. Like if I'm a 16th kind of guy, he's more of a, an eighth to a three sixteenths kind of guy. And my jointer just said, nom, 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 give me more. Uh, it had no problem with that. So that was just a bad joke on my part. Um, but honestly, I don't think it's much of a problem for most people. I think if, I don't know, maybe if you're a, a mill and you are taking some seriously rough stock down and you really, you know, time is money. So you're trying to take off massive passes. Okay, maybe. Um, but generally speaking, I don't think it's that much of an issue. And I have to wonder if you, we're talking about blade contact, uh, you know, a, a long planer or jointer knife contacts the entire width of the board all at once and then it has a break once yeah right and then it has a break to the next blade and then another break so he's saying it has time to kind of spool back up uh but with a helical head yes you are in constant contact but you're just contacting with one tooth at a time or one of the the carbide inserts at a time and never in the same place you know more than once so i don't know your angle yeah, exactly. So I don't know for sure that I totally buy the argument that it is more strenuous on the motor. Maybe it is, but I don't know that it's to any extent that's ever going to cause anybody a problem. Right. And I think where where all this stuff comes up is on the longevity. Like how often are you using the machine? Any shop that that's going to be an issue, you know, they're running 5,000 linear feet an hour on the thing like right. we do at our mill. That's the horsepower on that machine is so huge that it just doesn't matter. Yeah. It really doesn't make a difference. Um, I, I think the lowest horsepower machine we have in our mill is 25 horses. Mm-hmm. So 
no, <laughs> it's just not an issue for us. Yeah. Maybe. Um, and it's funny cause I think I saw this question come up in the, um, the guild Facebook group, I think maybe it was the, the woodworking, whatever you're calling that. <laughs> the woodworking community. The woodworking community. Think whatever. generic. <laughs> Somebody brought this up in reference to like a DeWalt benchtop, like 734, uh-huh. 735. And this question was brought up then. Maybe I can make a case for that, you know, lower horsepower, sure. um, non-induction motor in that thing. But I don't know, man. I mean, one of the things is it's nice to think that some of our power tools are going to last for 20, 30 years. Some of those cheaper benchtop ones just aren't really made for lasting that long. Right. Yeah. No, it's uh, a, at least something to think about. Hairs on this. Yeah, possibly. Uh, you know what else is uh, really bad about planers when you have the speed adjustment knob halfway in and you think that the feed roller is broken, <laughs> which not, not going to say that that happened to me the other day, uh, but it was at the point that I actually was like texting the guys going, <laughs> I'm not going to add that maybe you might've texted Matt and I and said, what the yeah. hell, man? <laughs> Why is my planer broken? And I was like, oh, because I, I think I nudged that, that little knob in accidentally. So, uh, Just you know what? I'm glad that you texted us back when you realized it before, before? I had time to go push the knob in. Because, Thank you for your you tech know, service. Uh, that'd be great. <laughs> we, we basically have the same planer. Mine's green. Yours is gold. Yeah. So it's the exact same adjustment. And I have, I have like pulled it out and it hasn't quite engaged. Yeah. I've like pushed it back in and it hasn't quite engaged. Yeah. So <laughs> it happens. It does Absolutely indeed. <laughs> All right. So we got another one here from Daniel and he's got a little bit of a kickback on, um, books. I think. Yeah, books. Hey, guys. Uh, I want to first thank you for not quitting. Uh, And I wanted to do a quick shout-out to the Grumpy Old Man Complaining episode uh, where Mark mentioned how all of us new young woodworkers are getting into all of this with basically only YouTube under our belt and uh, are constantly ignoring all the uh, beautiful literature out there, uh, the books, the museums, and so... I wanted to say you at least in your moment of, you know, old man rage uh, managed to influence <laughs> this young man to go pick up some books. And uh, I wanted to put that back on you guys other than peddling your own stuff like the Hybrid Woodward Worker, which is a great book. I did pick up that one. Um, what other uh, pieces of literature would you recommend? Anyway, thank you again. Okay. Just want to clarify, I never said all woodworkers and constantly he used a couple of absolutes that I don't normally use. <laughs> I think a lot of people are doing research on this stuff, but you know, most let's, let's use that word. Most people. Um, all right. So I did write a, an article. No, actually I did a little video on this on my website for uh, YouTube versus books or something, you know, trying to catch people's attention like that. But on that post and, and we'll put a link in the notes, Uh, I actually have my rundown of books that I recommend things that are just like on a top 10 list uh, of mine. So I will bring up that link real quick. And Shannon, if you want to just give like your top, I don't know what top three favorite books, maybe. Sure. Oh, this is actually kind of not easy. I mean, I guess if you're a beginner, Mm -hmm. it's more about how to do stuff than kind of inspiration because the, the, my top 10, whatever books now would be, very little to do with how to cut that joint and how to mill that board. Mm -hmm. It's all about the design side of things and more kind of museum style book than anything else. Um, as far as a how to, um, 
Taunton Press's uh, Gary Wagowski's book, Joinery. Yeah. To me, it's kind of a, a Bible. Um, it always sits around. It pretty much has just about every joint under the sun and multiple ways with which to cut it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great one. Um, next would be, well, and this is a bit of an inspirational one, but Nakashima's book, Soul of a Tree, was actually a book that I read from page, like cover to cover, like in order. <laughs> I didn't just dip in and dip out as I needed something. I yeah. actually read the whole thing. There is more, um, certainly there's a lot of inspiration in there, where there's also a lot of really cool thoughts on design and how you can apply it to your own work, um, which to me was if for nothing other than from an inspirational perspective, it definitely exposed me to a very different style of woodworking than I was exposed to when I was first getting started mm-hmm. in a very um, Western cabinet looking type stuff. This is just totally different. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool stuff. Nice. Those would be two that I would come up with, I guess. Uh, I'm going to just pick from my list of like six or seven that I had here. Um, Impractical cabinet maker, uh, Krenov, I think is very mm-hmm. good. Gives you a, a good sense of um, someone's design perspective and, and where all that's coming from. Uh, Schwarz's workbenches book, I think for oh, yeah. like the practicality of shop furniture and things like that, just even though it's focused on workbenches is very eye opening in that regard. Uh, and then understanding wood finishing, Bob Flexner and, uh, Oh yeah, that's a good one. Right. Another I mean, Taunton book. Yeah. And here's the thing, anything Taunton, right? I mean, those are yeah. the library titles. They're a little pricey, but man, can you get some amazing ones? In fact, just haven't even opened them yet because I just like to buy things and not actually use them. Uh, the Tafe Rid series, it's a big three part series, three volumes on his, um, what is it called? The Tafe Rid teaches woodworking. And that is like, that's kind of where it all began. If you want to look at like modern media and uh, sort of a woodworking, hobbyist woodworking, it kind of all started there with this Tafred title. So that's why I want to kind of go back and see the roots of basically what all of us are regurgitating all the time in YouTube videos. (laughs) Kind of, you know, a lot of it all comes back to that. So definitely worth the read. Okay. Actually, period furniture details from Taunton. Another Mm -hmm. good one. If you're at all into 18th century furniture and you want to know which I, am. I you know, carve a flame finial, mm-hmm. you could get the high boy guild project and learn from that's that. true. Or you could learn to do it right. Uh, then, ah, go to the Taunton book. That yeah, there's a bunch sucks. Of, you, you start with Taunton, really. I mean, <laughs> there's such a great series in there from finishing to joinery. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a cabinet making book. There's a period furniture book. Um, well, I mean, they've, they've been producing instructional woodworking content for pretty much longer than anybody else. And they're also yeah. one of the best at it and always have been. So it's kind of a, a good resource. Okay. He's got a bunch of good stuff too. Anarchist design book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great one for staked furniture. Yeah. We could go on for a while. Well, that's a good point. Just like we're we're saying, Taunton is great. Kind of like anything by Lost Art Press, a, a little bit gets a little, you know, some of it gets a little bit out there that I'm not totally interested in it. But they have some really, really great stuff over there. Definitely for the uh, academic uh, of, of woodworking, I would say. All right, or or an Estonian. Yes. You're in Estonia and you want to know how you should woodwork. You could buy Estonian woodworking in that way. <laughs> Just make sure you stick to those rules. That's Once right. you leave the borders of Estonia, you're okay. Then you can go back to any other type you want. Uh, all right. So next one here is from Nathan. 
Hey guys, this is Nate calling from the West Coast, and I have a shellac and wax finishing question. Feels kind of like Mark and Shannon territory, but uh, good timing. I typically apply shellac. I get a nice, uh, a nice couple of layers on there, and it looks good, and but a bit shiny. And so I've been following the Flexner couple of articles on using steel wool, 4.0 steel wool, to gently kind of knock that down so it's not so shiny. But then it looks pretty dull, and so I follow up with. Uh, uh, clear wax, like either Brie wax. I've tried Johnson paste wax, put a ball of it inside a t-shirt, apply some of that. And then in a small area, as soon as it kind of flashes off from wet looking to dry looking, I buff that with another, you know, clean rag or another t-shirt. Uh, and it kind of looks like nothing happened. Like there was nothing new on there. It's not any really shinier. It just kind of looks like I, I just used the steel wool. And I've done a two or three coats on a couple of different projects. Just seems like the wax is doing nothing. It might feel a little bit different, but it doesn't seem to change the uh, the shine and bring back a little something. And uh, I feel like the 4.0 steel wool makes it look pretty dull. So I don't know. Maybe my expectations are off, or maybe I'm hosing up this uh, application of wax. What are your thoughts? Stop using wax. There's my thought. <laughs> Uh, I'll let you take this one first. Cause I might, my advice would be a little bit of a departure from what he was previously trying to do. Did he say what kind of wax did I miss that? I don't think he did. He didn't name a brand. Okay. Um, first rule of wax is a little goes a very long way. So at least it doesn't sound like he's having that issue where if you get kind of the cloudy look, you got too much wax on the surface and you got to get it off there. Sounds like he's at least okay there. Mm-hmm. If it's a softer wax, um, it's going to be really difficult to bring up a high shine on that. It's going to give you a little bit more of that muted kind of soft look to it. You also may need to give it a little bit more time to cure before you can do any buffing whatsoever. Uh, a harder wax, like you know, flooring paste wax or something like that, you can bring it up to a, a really high shine if you want to keep buffing. But that also requires a fair amount of curing um, in order in order for it to just be hard enough that you're not just moving the stuff around as you wax it. I actually um, have never been a fan of using 4 out steel wool for this type of application. Yeah. Um, I don't like any uh, – granted, everything's an abrasive, but I don't like really any abrasion. Um, the whole like brown paper bag works great, but I've also found that just a regular old bit of T-shirt material – goes a really long way for buffing that up. If and if it is a softer wax and you're actually adding any abrasion whatsoever, you're really not going to buff it to any kind of shine because you're, again, the abrasive is kind of moving that stuff around. So um, you might want to verify, is this a harder wax or a soft wax that you're using? And uh, when in doubt, give it just a little bit more time to cure, like a week, mm-hmm. if not two, before you come back and start trying to um, rub out that finish. I think for me, I'm, I'm much more, I, I want the finish itself because wax to me is kind of like a temporary thing. Uh, it's a maintenance nightmare. It is a maintenance nightmare. And even if you get the sheen to be perfect, it's not going to stay that way uh, without the maintenance. So I don't feel like wax is the layer with which you want to establish your overall level of gloss and sheen. So for me, my approach would be to attack this at the shellac layer first. So, and you know, four out steel wool is fine, but think of it like in sandpaper terms, if there's a grit associated with steel wool, you have one grit 
And that's it. So if you don't like that, if it's too dull, which it sounds like it is, you're kind of stuck with it. So this is why I really prefer to use high grit abrasives or even polishes if you wanted to, um, to hit that shellac surface first. Get the actual hard you know, resin material that's on the surface to be the sheen, the exact sheen you want. And here's the great thing. If you depart from, you know, the four-aught steel wool, you now have an array of things. You practice a little bit to see what each grip produces, but you can dial it in and get the exact grit you want and the exact look you want. Get that in the shellac layer. And then if you want to hit it with a coat of wax afterwards, that's just, you know, gravy. But the, the, the wax isn't going to fix or dramatically change what sheen is already on there before you apply the wax. It might just kind of like accentuate it or push it in one direction or the other. Don't rely on the wax for that. Do it in the shellac layer first and and move away from the four-aught steel wool and try different uh, abrasive pads or even abrasive like schmutz. What's that? (laughs) Step away from the steel wool. Step away from the steel wool. I mean, I don't actually have any steel wool in my shop. it's, It's like my least favorite thing to work with. Uh, the, what is it like the Liberon, I believe, uh, it's a, it's one that's for finishing. It doesn't break apart quite as much as regular steel wool, but there, there are just so many things that I would rather use to accomplish the same goal than a steel wool pad. Yeah. I mean, if you're starting with shellac and again, it all depends upon the type of finish you want, but I mean, shellac is just so forgiving mm-hmm. when it comes to applying it. I mean, French polishing is essentially a shellac, um, based finishing process mm-hmm. right <laughs> I'm not sure what i was trying to say there but i mean just applying it with a pad you're going to get a, a really really smooth finish that you can do all kinds of stuff with as far as gloss and, and sheen and everything but right yeah that's the, the biggest thing for me with wax is just you know it's not going to look the same a year from now and i'm going to have to reapply something and yeah, i don't uh, like that well here's the real here's the real thing that you need to do the real secret you take the can of wax you put it in your hand you walk over to the garbage can and you drop it in. Yeah, that's keep the, it around for for waxing your cast iron. Oh, surfaces. that's right. Keep yeah, keep it for your tools. <laughs> yeah, that's always important. You got to keep it for that. Like the super expensive Renaissance <laughs> wax. Yeah, never once has that been on a project. That's true. Mine either. It's all black and on, gooey in on there. Cast iron surfaces. Yeah, mine's just got grease and wood chips and all kinds of stuff in there. For, yeah, for furniture, what? In there. Yeah. The rag that I keep in there yeah. probably needs to be swapped out. Faux yeah. shoe. It's great for rust prevention on hand planes and, and power tool surfaces. That's great stuff. Yeah, it is. Okay. Nick had a question about sharpening. Hi, guys. This is Nick from Victoria in Canada on the West Coast. I have a sharpening question for you. Pause for groans. Um, I'm currently using a pair of ceramic water stones I got at Lee Valley, uh, 1,000 and 4,000 grit, and the Veritas MK2 sharpening jig on plane blades. Um, The 1,000 grit seems to mud up really quickly and dries out, and I get this sort of sticky, crusty slurry all over the top that I'm frequently having to flush and wipe off the roller before I continue. The 4,000 doesn't seem to do this as much. Um, but it takes a long time to build up a slurry and really get get some results going. And Mark, I know that you've been using the MK2 jig in the past. I'm wondering if you're still using it, if you have any tips on technique with it. Um, I haven't been able to find much on the internet about uh, is it better to push hard? Is it even moderate pressure front to back? Do you kind of lift on the backstroke? What's the best way to do it? I, I seem to be dragging the slurry back on the back half of the stone and then it's getting all up under the roller and uh, causing sort of a rough ride on the back end. 
Um, I'm thinking about getting Show a, title. a 8,000 grit diamond <laughs> stone as well and a strop and just trying to stay up in that range and not have to go back to the water stone so much. So any thoughts or suggestions would be great. Love the show. Thanks, guys. Okay, so this this slurry schmutz that he's talking about, I, this can be pretty stone-dependent sometimes. I mean, I use uh, Shapton ceramic stones, and sometimes, for me, it typically happens on the higher grits. Uh, that's where I get the kind of slurry that you can't really tell what it wants to do. Like, is it helping you? Is it hurting you? Uh, but a lot of times you start to just have difficulty keeping the uh, blade consistently running across the surface when this buildup occurs. So I know what works for me and I'm not sure if, if, if that's still the nature of the problem for his 1000 grit situation. Uh, but if you can get clean running water, well, even if it's just recycled with a pump, uh, but I sharpen at the sink and a lot of times I'll put the sink on a trickle and I will actually put the stone right under that trickle and sharpen in that and constantly flushing the material away is a real good way to keep it from building up like that. So that might be something for, for him to try. Uh, again, I don't know if this is something specific to his stone type that that's causing that problem at such a low grit, but that might be something to at least experiment with. Have you experienced that, that on something like a thousand? Mm, no, but been a long time since i've used like i used shapton for years i'm now all diamond and shapton okay. just doesn't ceramic stones in general don't really make a whole lot of slurry they're really not the term is friable they don't break down as much mm-hmm. um and some of the softer stones that's what makes them cut fast as they are very friable and yeah, that slurry can be down. a good thing a lot of japanese um stones actually use a little stone called a nagura stone which is actually designed to create slurry yeah that little white Um, one right and that will aid you in sharpening but um a lot of times that originally that original idea came out because somebody was freehand sharpening and i've experienced what he's talking about where it like gums up the roller and just kind of creates a problem and then you get cross contamination from one stone to another because you're carrying all this gunk over on the roller so Mm -hmm. I feel for you. Um, I think you just got to keep it really well lubricated and and move some of that stuff off. Um, it can be helpful, but I don't think that helpful in the lower grits. Yeah. I think you'd rather, because what you'd rather do is clean it off and continually expose the new surface, right? That's the sharp part that's mm-hmm. actually causing the abrading is the, the new crystals that you just um, uncovered. Right. So, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I don't know if this is... Great advice, but because it's new to me and what I tried recently was I bought a DMT stone to flatten and I've been using my DMT, uh, what is it, the duo sharp with the two sided uh, plate. Mm -hmm. I've been using that to to flatten my stones for years, but I just figured, you know, let's try the one that's actually meant for flattening. That's like guaranteed and to be certain, a certain flatness. I was like, let's give it a shot, but it's a really rough grit. And I don't know exactly what it is, but it's pretty rough. So when I run my stones against that and clean it, the stones themselves, while you're not changing the grit of the stone, you are creating a little bit of texture on the surface. And I find that it cuts so well after that point, because because of that roughness, it seems like there's a lot of places for the slurry to drop down into and kind of stay out of the way. And all I'm doing is getting this exposure to nice, clean granules up at the top. So again, I don't know if that that will fix his particular problem, but it actually made my stones perform a little bit better by having that scratch pattern in there. So yeah. that might be something to try. Uh, now, with regard to the, the Mark II jig, 
I found it, it kind of depends on the steel. There are some chisels that I find re respond well to me pushing forward and back. Let's say I'm just sharpening the bevel. Uh, I can do back and forward motion and then I just get that mirror shine on the surface and it's perfect. Uh, there are times like when I was sharpening my new, um, who's he, what's it? Uh, buh, 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 why am I spacing? Dave, Dave Jeske. Blue Spruce. Blue Spruce. <sighs> brain fart. Uh, so I was sharpening those and I actually found that once I got beyond a thousand, if I would do a back and forth motion, I actually get a very cloudy appearance and it's flattening it. You know, and this, I'm actually talking about flattening the back at this point. Um, it would give me a very cloudy appearance. And the only way that I can get a true clean, smooth and, and very, you know, mirror type shine is a single stroke pulling back. And I don't know why, but just in the course of experimentation, that's the result I was getting. So the same thing can apply to a jig sometimes, but I, I don't know that it's jig specific or stone specific so much as maybe steel specific. Uh, but I found that I got better results if I just did a single pull stroke as opposed to that normal back and forth sort of rubbing action. Um, have, you, have you ever noticed the difference in that? I know a lot of people are believers in, in you know, one or the other. Um, yeah. Um, I know. I think I think I experienced that with the MK2 and I don't know again that it was the MK2. I just think, you know, less frantic, <laughs> more, <laughs> more kind of, you know, let's approach this methodically. And yeah. the, the pullback motion again, I really if you think about it, what you're doing is pulling the steel out towards the edge and you're creating that burr. So the constant back and forth, you might actually have trouble getting that burr because you're possibly removing it on that forward stroke. Mm -hmm. So I think just in general, pulling back is going to give you a little bit better result. I think you're also and right. with the MK2 specifically, because when it does have problems, it's because it's that clamping mechanism. Things can slide back and forth, like with thinner chisels. I hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. The the pulling motion, I think, gives you a little bit more control yeah. over the blade. And the the push, you might, if you're getting any shifting issues, you're probably going to see it on that push stroke. Yeah. Yeah, and I think pushing versus pulling, you're probably actually changing your pressure and not even realizing it. So if you're supposed to be keeping consistent pressure, you're going to get more consistent pressure if you're always, the motion is always in the same direction versus, yeah. you know, pull versus push. So, okay. Did you know they came out with a little add-on for that so that they, uh, instead of gripping from top and bottom, you can uh, now add this other adapter to to the jig that grips from the sides. Oh yeah, I think I did see that. It's great for for thin chisels or chisels where you know the thickness is not consistent. So when you grip from top to bottom, you skew it and you get a way off square bevel when you sharpen that way. Uh, but if the sides are parallel, then you can grip from the sides and get a much better uh, hone on that one. It's pretty cool. Nice recovery for them on that. Right? It's having problems. If only a few years later. Um. Okay. Soon so they're going to have a jig for their... Uh, baked maple handles on their chisels <laughs> splitting <laughs> the jig will be to cut them off and put on a new one <laughs> it'll just be a saw <laughs> they don't ever want to talk to me about sponsorship anyway so i might as well just burn that bridge right there now. you go well done uh okay so man i didn't think a two-person show would be uh this long but we still got two emails to do let's uh let's rip through them Jeremiah wrote in, he says, just accepted my first commission, building a technology table for a local teacher's classroom. I have my design and material, but I'm struggling to get started. Do either of you ever struggle with starting a project? But more specifically, have you ever struggled with nerves or doubting your abilities 
once someone else's money is involved. Now, I, I chose this because I am at the start of a project, and it uh, it doesn't take much. Maybe you guys are the same, you know, folks listening to this. Uh, it doesn't take much to knock me off of my my role. Like, I'm ready to go in the shop. It's going to be a great day. I'm going to get tons of work done. Oh, look at that. I got to check a message on Facebook. <laughs> and then like, suddenly, I'm in this loop of other crap that's distracting me because I'm, I'm letting myself be distracted. So the beginning of a project can be tricky, but it's mostly, you know, um, me doing these things to myself. Like it's, it's not a, th- a third party <laughs> unilaterally making this decision for me. It's just I'm being lazy or I'm allowing myself to be distracted. And a lot of times it is that just initial beginning project hesitation, uh, not necessarily wanting to commit to going down a certain path because I might be slightly unsure of something. <coughs> Excuse me, a little itchy throat. Uh, so I did just go through this and this was supposed to be a full productive week for me. And because of just double checking measurements, it's a guild project. So I got to make sure that everything is feed rollers on your planer, right? I'm chasing, I'm like wasting a half hour looking at feed rollers. Um, but I had a few things to do in the shop. I was just distracted by things and I really didn't get started in earnest until yesterday. (laughs) And then of course today I'm recording a show. Uh, so, you know, I can't do anything for the rest of the day. The day's just shot. So I do often have this problem. Now, fortunately, it's not so much a hesitation and lack of like uh, trust in myself when someone else's money is involved, because I don't really do that anymore. But in the past, that was an issue. Uh, And the thing is, ultimately, I trust my skills. I know that I'm going to be able to get through this one way or the other, uh, even if it is a paid project. And, And very seldom did I find that the person buying my stuff has a more refined and more critical eye than I have for my own stuff. Uh, I would say 100% of my customers I've built things for, I'd be able to hide things from them. Not that I would, not that I should or would want to do that, but if I needed to, I could. And that that's what you have to remind yourself as a person who's well-versed in this stuff. You are going to be able to identify the flaws and your standard should be higher than your customer's. Right, so even if you fall slightly short of your personal standard, you're probably still above what is considered acceptable by the person who's paying for this thing. So honestly, you know, you'll probably be fine. Uh, this thing, if it's going in a school, this thing is going to get beat up and abused. So it just has to be sturdy and have a good finish on it and look decent because it's probably not going to stay that way. <laughs> it's probably going to get beat up pretty soon. Right. Yeah. I. I got nothing to add to that. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. Especially on like sabotaging yourself. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what, what's up with that. I don't know why. Well, part of the reason why is like, I still have this sinus thing going on. So it was very cloudy in my, my head and that's not a great time to fire up power tools. So just kind of like milling around, you know, putting new material on my vices and, and aligning all of my dogs <laughs> with rubberized cork because that's important. So <laughs> it's like so any, any, Anything to keep me busy that wasn't building this project was what I came up with this week. Well, you know, there's something to be said about making the shop just a, a friendlier place. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where totally. we hang out. It's our clubhouse. So right. if you add little creature comforts, I did it the other day. I hung a bunch of stuff on the wall that's been sitting on the floor for a while. And it's yeah. like, this did nothing other than just clean up the floor. And now I just feel better yeah. in the shop. So I've got check, like, that's done. I've you got know, about four posters, life. four posters that need to go up that Nicole has purchased for me. And I just haven't taken the time to do it, but you're right. It's, it's, it's a fun space. So why not have, uh, you know, Goldie Wilson for mayor poster, which is my next one to go up on the wall. <laughs> 
awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, right on. All right. All right. This uh, last email comes from Joe. He says, I started making a solid stave shell snare drum out of three-quarter oh. inch maple <clears throat> using pretty much all hand tools. <laughs> I know, kind of ridiculous, but wow. this is a passion project for me. I was able to get all 24 staves nicely beveled and glued up. I've been using my block plane and a Japanese saw rasp to round the outside of the shell to get my thickness to, to get my thickness line. And on the inside of the shell, I've been using a tiny wooden Japanese convex plane to hollow out and round out the inside of the shell. My question is, is there a better way to hollow out the inside of this round shell using hand tools? How would Shannon go about this? I know using a router jig would be ideal for this, as many hobby drum makers <laughs> use this method. But I do not own a router and really have no desire to purchase one. All right. Wow. Well, I mean, the convex plane is actually a pretty good way to do this. Um, I would think unless it causes major issues with your glue up, I think one of the better ways to do it is to do it before you glue it up. Um, because you can you can hold each individual stave a little bit easier. You've got more access to it. Um, but you're still going to have to go back and do some refining, you know, to fare that curve on the inside, but you'll have less wood to remove. And I think the convex plane is actually your, your finer tool that you'll be using to refine that. So it's going to be a little bit slow as you're trying to hog off some of that material. Mm -hmm. Um, in which case a gouge is fantastic for this. Um, just going in and, 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 and hogging away material or splitting away material. A draw knife is a really good use for this or an in shave specifically, um, I shouldn't say specifically, they're two different tools, but the, the, the end shave is going to have a convex profile to the blade. So it's going to get in there and hollow things out. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a coopered project you're creating here. The coopers have been doing this stuff for years using end shaves and scorps. Lee Valley makes a product they call a pull shave, which is actually a very effective tool. Um, it's snazzy looking with its booping handles too. Um, and that actually, I don't know, you say a snare drum, and I'm thinking maybe six inches tall. So these are short staves. I don't know. I guess it could be taller than that. You're a drummer, Mark. Snare it depends on what. Shallow, well, and it depends on the snare drum. There's like a piccolo snare that's really tiny, but I, right. I, it's probably somewhere four to six inches, I would say. Right. But it's not, you know, it's not a bass drum. It's not going to have 12, 24 inch long staves. They're going to be relatively small staves. So, right. um, you know, a, a pull shave would make pretty quick work of that, and you can adjust it just like you would any spoke shave and you could do your coarse, medium and fine work with that pull shave. Mm -hmm. But, um, once it's already glued up, um, because they're relatively short, I think you could make pretty fast work of hogging it out just using a gouge. Um, if that really scares you, then adopt something like an in shave. Um, I think your convex plane is your fine tool. That should be your last thing when you're like, you know, a 16th from the line. You just need to fare the curve a little bit. Mm -hmm. Cool project. People keep telling yeah. me I need to make one sometime and I'm just haven't had a chance to even think about it. I'd like to though. All right. Well, I think that's just about does it for the show. So sorry not to have Matt here. I mean, it was kind of a nice break, but the show's not, it's just not the same without him. It's always been that way. Whenever one host is missing, the show just doesn't feel the same. No, we need three people. We do. It's a three-person show. All right. Uh, why don't you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here. I do that. If you really miss Matt and you want to let us know, you know, if, if you think that Matt should should go out on his own and form his own Instagram talk show, <laughs> then, 
then maybe don't let us know that. But see, now yeah. you're gonna now you're gonna let people know that we we share information like that. <laughs> <laughs> the person who said that is gonna know that that got back to us. Yeah, well, <laughs> we talk. What can I say? We're friends. We talk. We talk. Ourselves. What are you gonna do? We swap silly emails that get sent to us, and it's great fun. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> okay. So anyway, if you want to send us a silly email, there's a couple of ways you could do that. A, you could just not send us an email, and you could record something using your voice memo app, and then you could email it to woodtalkonline at gmail.com, or you could send us an email. Go to woodtalkshow.com slash contact, and you could fill out the pretty form there and leave us all the stuff you want to tell us right there. So Sweet. Last thing, we're everywhere. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Just look for Wood Talk Show on all those places, and you'll find us. You'll find great photos of us doing weird things that generally we've never done that involve lots of Photoshop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like being giant stone monuments. (laughs) Something we have never done before. Not yet. (laughs) We'll get there. (laughs) All right, well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time. See ya.